Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. If you're applying to medical school in 2022 to start medical school in 2023, join me Wednesday or Thursday, Wednesday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, or Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern at premedworkshop.com. Go register today. I'm going to show you how to tell your story in your application. Again, that's premedworkshop.com. If you are applying to medical school in 2022, be there or be square. The Medical School HQ Podcast, session number 69. Hey, this is Dog MD, rapper, physician, legendary turntable health revolutionary, and part-time gardener. And you're listening to the Medical School HQ Podcast, hosted by the irredeemably awesome Ryan Gray. Welcome back. I am your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and I believe that competition amongst your pre-med and medical student peers is detrimental to becoming a great physician. In this podcast, we show you how collaboration, hard work, and honesty are critical to becoming a superior physician in today's healthcare environment. Welcome back, folks. As I just mentioned, and as Z-Dog introduced me, my name is Ryan Gray, and I am back with the wonderful Dr. Allison Gray. Hello. You didn't say hello, everybody. Hello, everybody. That's what you normally say. (laughs) I'm mixing it up. Hi, Allison. Hello, Ryan. How have you been? I've been great. How have you been? I've been wonderful. We haven't had you on the podcast for a while. I know. I've been missing it. Why? Where have you been? Uh, I've been just a little busy. <laughs> Working. Lots of work. Lots of work. All right. So before we get into today's topic, and we'll we'll talk about that in one second, I do want to let you know that this podcast is brought to you by freemcatgift.com. At freemcatgift.com, you can download a brand new 30-plus page report on the most important pieces of MCAT information that you need to know to take your knowledge of the MCAT to the next level. Go to freemcatgift.com today and download the free report. So, Allison. Yes. What are we talking about today? Today, we are talking about end-of-life care. End of What does end-of-life care have to do with getting into medical school and being a medical student? <laughs> well, it's a good thing that you asked. End-of-life care will affect everybody in medicine, whether you're a medical student, whether you're even a pre-med who's shadowing and getting your foot in the door. And certainly as a resident and practicing physician, you will encounter patients who are moving toward or who are at their end of life. 
And there's a lot of medical care that goes into that period of time. And it's a really important topic to address. So we think that this topic, it's a little different from what we've done in the past, but it really does and will affect all of you out there who are our listeners or, or most of you at least. Yeah. Once, once you're in the medical field, this is a very important topic. And we hope that getting it into your brain now will help once you see it. As a medical student, you'll definitely see it. And then obviously, as an intern and a resident. For the pre-med students, I think this is important because it is a potential topic during interviews. Absolutely. A lot of ethical questions can be drawn from this. A lot of what would you do if you were in this situation questions. So it's an important one for you as well. Hopefully we can give you some pearls that if you are asked these types of questions in your interviews, you'll have a little bit better understanding of of how you can answer them. So let's start by talking about some of the history of palliative care, and, and which is what we know as end-of-life care. Where did this all start? Yeah, and just to make an uh, initial comment, too, that palliative care, uh, we think about, we connect with end-of-life care, as Ryan said, but actually what we found in the last decade or more is that when you start introducing palliative care, which we're going to define in a second, even really early on when someone is, for example, diagnosed with cancer or um, a really unfortunate diagnosis. Palliative care can really, what what palliative or to palliate means is to make a disease or its symptoms less severe or unpleasant without removing the actual cause of the disease itself. And so really palliative care or to palliate, that can be done at many different stages of an illness and not just at the end of life. But traditionally, when we think about end-of-life care, palliation and palliative care certainly always ties in or should. Yeah, and I I think one of the biggest differentiations here, or a key part of the definition, is to make less severe, I think is the biggest thing. I think as new doctors and, and medical students, we typically will associate palliative care with giving up pulling the plug so to speak with withdrawing care Ugh, all terms which but, make my skin crawl yeah and, and we'll talk about that more in a little bit but we're still caring for the individual and i think that's the biggest differentiation that we'll make during this episode is is there is state there is still care being rendered it's just different absolutely it's a huge thing i think to to really help uh, help get rid of some pretty nasty misperceptions that are out there about what end of life and palliative care are about as well. Yeah. So when it, when did this become such a hot topic or, or even a kind of a field in of itself? Well, so palliative care began with the hospice movement, which, uh, and, and many of you out there may know what hospice refers to. Hospice is a type of care. And uh, so in the 19th century, uh, there was basically the first hospices became established and they were places for the dying uh, in Europe primarily. And the modern hospice then was a sort of more recent concept that actually originated in the UK. There is a hospice founded in 1967 uh, called uh, the St. Christopher's Hospice. And it was founded by Dame Cicely Saunders. And she's actually regarded as the founder of the modern hospice movement. So this is 
not necessarily new stuff, but uh, so taking care of dying people and taking care of patients in hospice has been around for quite a while. But in the U.S. and, and in, in terms of the palliative care movement itself, that's a bit newer. So where did palliation, uh, I keep saying palliation, what I mean is palliative care. Where did that begin in the U.S., Ryan? Tell us about that. So palliative care in the U.S., according to some of the research that we did for this episode, began at Cleveland Clinic and the Medical College of Wisconsin. Obviously, we expect Cleveland Clinic to be huge. Medical College of Wisconsin kind of surprised me that they were kind of leaders in this. So yeah, and I think there are a them. few others too, so definitely, yeah. yeah. And uh, so th that began in the 1980s. And now, according to the numbers, 80% of U.S. hospitals with more than 300 beds have a hospice program. And let me quickly define, this is something... I don't know if I learned this in medical school or as a as an intern. To this was a, as a medical student to qualify for hospice, the primary care physician or the physician taking care of the patient, if they can say that they wouldn't be surprised if the patient was no longer with us in six months, then the patient qualifies for hospice. And I'm sure there are plenty of other qualifying things, but. That was the general rule of thumb that was taught to to us as medical students um, during some hospice rotations that we actually did. Absolutely. So when when you're treating a patient and, and you go, you know what, this person's not going to live much longer than six months, so I'm not expecting them to be around much longer, then maybe your mindset should start shifting from aggressive treatment to more of this palliative care. And I think... As we talk about this more, the biggest need for this comes from the fact that our ability to treat diseases has increased so much in the last several decades that as physicians, we, we think we can cure everything and we want to be able to cure everybody and patients think that we can fix them all the time. And at some point, you have to be realistic and understand that maybe the next round of chemotherapy or the next surgery or whatever is next in your algorithm is just futile at that point. And let's start making the patient comfortable. I know during my surgical oncology rotations, during my internship, there were several patients that I, that I wished we were be better able to communicate maybe some of the, some of this palliative care to them instead of watching them suffer through more and more surgery that was seemed to me and many other people futile at that point. Yeah, and I think there's the futility concept that comes into things and there's also thinking just broadly about about a person's quality of life. No one wants to die in a hospital. They've actually done studies that show that most people would prefer to die at home with their family and friends and with that you have to think about that if someone is really has a terminal illness and is really in the last few weeks or months even or days of their life, how do they want their their life to be and, and what kind of quality of life can we help them have? And that, that's part of, of being a physician and a healthcare provider is to try to, again, make people better. It doesn't always mean make their illness better, but there's always something you can do to try to make that person feel better or to bring something good. We're all about beneficence and trying not to do harm. So 
that's the quality of life piece of things really does come into play as well. Yeah. So one of the things that kind of threw me off as we were researching this was actually how few medical centers have palliative care. And it was 23% of, what is this? hundred. There are um, 120 U.S. cancer center hospitals. Only 23% of the centers have beds that are dedicated to palliative care. And that's just, and that goes to that whole mindset of, of we can treat this, we can beat this, and and not necessarily understanding that we can't fix everybody and everything. Absolutely, I think that was a, a JAMA article that you're you're uh, quoting there, um, and it's it's really it's quite striking actually when you think about it, um, because yeah, we're we've moved so far along in some ways in the treatment of cancers. And there's so much research being done all the time, but we always have to take that step back and realize that there are quite a number of cancer patients who we are not going to win the battle. Uh, We're not going to win the battle against their cancer, but what can we do to help that person have have a dignified death and a dignified end of their life uh, with as much peace as possible? So yeah, those numbers are surprising. Yeah, but what about that 2010... New England Journal of Medicine article. So this is a really interesting article. It uh, talked... And, and by the way, we'll have links to all these articles in the show notes, which you can get at medicalschoolhq.net slash 69, as in episode 69. Definitely, yeah. These are great articles to read and just to inform yourself further. So this uh, New England uh, Journal article in 2010 talked about lung cancer patients. And the findings were actually that the patients who received early palliative care actually experienced not only less depression and an increased quality of life, but they also survived longer. So they survived 2.7 months longer on average than those who were receiving standard oncologic care, which you'd think, my God, well, isn't palliative care all about helping people in the dying process and end of life? But that's the whole thing, that palliation and palliative care is about helping improve uh, the comfort of the individual, helping free them of, of pain and discomfort and anxiety. And so if you think about it from that perspective, maybe in a sense, it's not so surprising that when you actually focus on those things and try to help the patient in that sense, that maybe they would have a longer life and a more comfortable one at that. So that was just a really landmark, I think, and very interesting article that helps us really reflect on why palliative care is so, so important and why we need to really put a lot of effort into making sure that we understand the importance of medical care, good medical care at the end of life. Yeah. So let's go back and I I had mentioned earlier pulling the plug and withdrawing care. What what do those things spark in your mind when I say those things? Well, as I said earlier, they make my skin crawl, quite frankly. <laughs> um, they didn't always. I think when I was a medical student and even early on in my internship, that was, those were terms that I had heard. Certainly, I'd heard about the withdrawal of care. And that's a term that's still used very 
widely. Um, the pulling the plug thing, I think, is something that's maybe more of a layman's term and is thrown about the medical profession, but I, I don't think you'll hear most doctors and healthcare providers using that terminology because it's pretty nasty if you think about it. It doesn't invoke a very, <laughs> a very nice image. The withdrawal of care is really used a lot, and, and that, that wording is, and I think that we need to be very careful about our jargon and, and the wording that we're using with patients. If we take a step back and say, well, what does it mean to withdraw care? What, what, is that, what would that make a patient and his or her family think about? Well, to withdraw means to remove. So are we removing ourselves from that patient's care? Are we washing our hands of that patient? What exactly does that imply? It, it To me, none of it is good. I think it does not send a good message at all. So in my personal opinion and professional opinion, I don't think that language should ever be used. I think uh, it actually indicates a lack of understanding about end-of-life care and really leaves the patient and the family with the feeling that you're not going to be caring for them anymore, which is just not right. Yeah, and, and as somebody who... Uh, watched my father on life support at at a young age, and then even when we were in medical school, had two family members on life support go through this process. If I heard withdrawal care, pull the plug, it it sounds exactly like that. It sounds like you're giving up. When I think the the message that needs to be portrayed, and and remember, this isn't just us talking to you and and teaching you this stuff but it's it's so that when you're in these situations that you're able to alleviate a family member's pain and and their mental suffering and and their uneasiness about the whole situation so it's about choosing the right words and so in, instead of talking about pulling the plug and withdrawing care, it's more about a shift in care and a, a change in your thinking of what the specific goals of care are. And and that's really what you need to be communicating to family members and, and to patients themselves if they're still able to communicate with you. It's, Absolutely. It's, it's not we're going we're, we're gonna to stop treating your cancer. It's going to be like, how can we as the term palliate means, as the word is defined, how can we lessen everything that's going on without removing the cause, without giving you more and more and more chemo drugs to try to get rid of the cancer? How can we be okay with the cancer that's there and make you more comfortable and make your life better? Absolutely. I think the way you said it is just beautiful and that expression says it all to me is is how do we how are we defining this patient's goals of care so in in a very uh, new cancer or the diagnosis of of um, any real nasty chronic illness your your goals of care might be completely about really aggressive treatment of that disease to try to to battle it to to get rid of it and when you think about at the end of life or when, when someone is uh, really not going to benefit anymore from that really aggressive treatment, you're shifting your goals of care. So you're still caring for that patient and still devoting your time, your dedication, your energy to that patient, but it's all about a shift in your actual goals of care. And we talk about this with patients a lot and their families and 
we use that expression. And if you think about it, you can be just as aggressive in in trying to maximize someone's comfort as you could be in trying to get rid of their cancer. I should also mention, you know, we we keep using the word cancer and, and talking about about that, but I took care of many patients in my residency and um, continue to to some degree who've had major neurologic crises. And again, there you're, you are, again, talking about shifting your goals of care. So for example, someone who's had a devastating stroke, you're, that person may or may not be able to speak for themselves anymore, but you still may be having that conversation with the family. What are we doing now that this person may not be able to speak for themselves anymore, may not be able to move? Maybe eat. they're exactly eat, yeah. swallow. These, these questions are really tough, but we can really, I, the way I look at it, honestly, Ryan, is that I think of us as physicians as, as trying to guide the patient potentially if they're able to be there with us, but always, always still there and their family through potentially one of the most difficult times in all of their lives. And that is such a profound thing and such an important responsibility for us to have. And if you look at it in that sense that you're trying to help maximize this individual's comfort and help them through and their family through one of the most difficult times in their lives, that is so worthy of your dedication, your time. And and, and there's nothing about that that should ever be about, quote unquote, withdrawal, right? It's just a shift in your mindset. So yeah. goals of care is, is, I think, a really important phrase, a really important uh, concept to carry around with you in your medical training. And it's it's something that we can relate to something that we talk about all the time, or at least I do, with course correction. So somebody comes in, and, and I'll go back to cancer because it's obviously a big cause of, of suffering in, in um, people's lives. If, if a patient comes in with a new diagnosis of cancer, then where you are right now and where you want to be is going to be totally different than if you've gone through five rounds of chemotherapy, the person doesn't have the strength for another round. You have to realize where you are right now and where you want to be and course correct. And, and that's where that goals of care comes in. So oh, always course correcting, always trying to figure out what that next step is going to be. Definitely. And I I once went to a palliative care talk and I, it was so profound and I thought so highly of the speaker. And one of the things she talked about, um, not only is, is the fact that um, people at the end of life don't want to be dying in hospitals, people want to be surrounded by their loved ones and at home. And unfortunately, that's not necessarily the case often. Um, but also that if you think about what a family goes through when they lose a loved one, and they get home and they've they've gone the, the person dies and they go through the funeral process and everything what do they get at the end of the day from the hospital like 2 weeks after 3 weeks after <laughs> they get a big medical bill and how sad is that that just left such an impression in my mind and we uh, at some of the hospitals that I've worked at there are um certain things, certain uh, ways in which we can try to change that a little bit by, for example, sending cards in the mail and letting patients and their families know that we care uh, about what they've gone through. But I think it's also just so important to keep in mind while you're taking care of this patient who's potentially in their last days that you let that patient and family know in an ongoing way that they are still worth your time and caring just as much as the person right next door who has congestive heart failure and is 
requiring a lot of medical attention from nursing staff and and from you and, and other people in the hospital on you know on a, a, a very frequent basis this person next door who's in their dying process has just as much worth of your time and caring and compassion and dedication and so I think it's just really really important to think about that this is just like when a baby is born that's a really profound time it's about life and the time when a person leaves us and dies they they deserve that that death with dignity they deserve to leave our world and and know that people around them wherever they are dying and if that's in a hospital are still caring for them in a, in a really important and powerful way and not just sort of you know like they're sort of leftover breadcrumbs not to sound horrible but I, I I think I say that because I've seen this and I know Ryan has too that sometimes when a patient is shifted to this sort of comfort measures that that people do sort of step they step back they they don't uh, invoke that that important caring and that dedication anymore because they figure well that person's on their way out but we must in my mind we we must continue to just show that family that that we care and and to let them know that we're there for them and and there is uh, as their guide through this really difficult time. Yeah. So let's talk about what medical students and residents can take from this talk and what they should be thinking about during this time. Yeah. So I think um, the the bottom line is that you want to become informed. So in our medical education, we're, as Ryan has said, and we've said before in other podcasts, it's like drinking from a fire hose, right? So there's so much information thrown at you all the time. And as regards end-of-life care and, and palliative care, I think the, the key thing is you want to become informed because this is such an, uh, a, you, you will see this everywhere you go, right? I mean, unless you're maybe a radiologist and reading scans all day long, you're going, sorry, radiologist, maybe, maybe that's not fair. Um, but you will run into patients who become terminally ill and, and in the hospital and, or elsewhere who, uh, who need your help. And so when you do have opportunities to receive this kind of education in medical school and certainly as a resident on the fly, take in as much as you can be present. If your program offers education on this, really be be aware and, and learn as much as you can. Part of, again, why we're talking about this today is because we there we know that there's such a disparity in the kind of in the education around this, even even around family meetings, which we'll talk about in another podcast. There, if you think about how much time is is devoted to teaching a resident how to place a central line successfully, it's shocking to think about how little time is devoted to how to how how do you lead a family meeting? How do you have these conversations with patients? And 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 really the family members don't remember which antibiotic you gave and, and you know <laughs> how perfectly you placed that central right? line. Right. All they want to know is it was okay and it went in okay. What do they remember? They remember these conversations, these and and these moments and, and the care you took of their family member um, and the time you spent sitting with them. So we need as medical professionals, as students, as residents, as practicing physicians to be as well-trained and as savvy and caring and, and aware of, of the importance of this as we possibly can. So that's my main message, I think. Yeah. Is, that, there's, you know, there's probably a lot of pre-meds listening, and, and you might be a pre-med listening right now that had one of these situations with your family members and... It was that caring and compassionate physician that took the time to have this conversation with you and your family 
that led you to want to become a physician yourself. So think of that type of impact that you may have on on the family and, and the family members that you're having conversations with. But I think one of the, the other things that you talked about was to take the opportunity. And in the last podcast with Dr. Chan, he talked about getting out of your comfort zone. And this is this is one of the the key examples of it is go and find a a family meeting to be a part of and and kind of shadow for lack of a better term and just be a fly on the wall and watch how it goes did it go well did it go poorly go go to a palliative care talk find the palliative care team at your hospital where you're a medical student or where you're volunteering as a pre-med and get some experience with that because I know for for you, Allison, these family meetings and and this palliative care is some of the most rewarding work that you have done as a resident, right? Absolutely. I think when I think back on my entire training, it was some of these moments, some of these times that I spent with family members who were dealing with a loved one having just suffered a devastating neurological event. These were the the memories and the moments that have some, some of which have stuck with me the greatest and had such a profound effect on the way that I look at, at providing medical care, the way that I see myself as a physician and my role in helping patients. And if you think about all of the stuff that we deal with as physicians and kind of the not fun part of medicine, the administrative stuff and the documentation and, Yada, yada, yada. This this is the stuff that, that just for me, I find to be so profound that, that this is what, you know, you think about it in a certain sense. Well, gee, this person's just had a terrible stroke and what else are you going to do? And hey, you're a neurologist. You can't fix it. <laughs> I still hear that. <laughs> um, From me. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and, and Ryan is right in that there still are quite a lot of things in neurology that we still have a tough time treating. But that just goes back to the fact that, again, no matter where you are or, or who you're with, there's always something that you can provide. And being there with a family and helping guide them through this awful, tragic situation in a way that provides dignity and support and compassion, I think, is one of the most profound gifts that you can give another human being and their family members as a physician. And that is such a profound responsibility and, and really privilege as a physician. So uh, I, th- I find this work just extremely important and it's uh, something that I will look um, forward to to participating in as a physician for the rest of my career yeah and I think it's just so important to to educate ourselves as a community about the importance of this work well said all right folks that was a very different topic from us one that we both believe in highly it's that it's very important to becoming a superior physician like we talked about at the opening during our our opening but again these types of topics can be brought up during your medical school interviews during your residency interviews so important topics all around for for everybody not just for those practicing medicine right now yeah, but, and if uh, oh, I'm cutting you go off. Go ahead. Sorry, host. That's okay. <laughs> I'm just thinking too, and and I know Ryan says this a lot, but I'll just reach out to all you folks and say, 
if you've had an experience like this as is either a patient or um, not a patient, but a, a family member of a patient, or if you've uh, been on the other end as a medical student or a pre-med or a resident, reach out to us. Let us know about that experience. We'd love to hear about it and, and hear from you. Yeah. What, what were some of those key takeaways? What went right in your eyes? What went wrong? You can leave those comments uh, again on our show notes page, specifically for this episode, which is at medicalschoolhq.net slash 69. And as I said earlier, you can get links to some of the research articles and, and journal uh, articles that we mentioned earlier. We'll have links to all of that there. So as I had mentioned earlier, go to freemcatgift.com. We just finished putting together a 30-plus page report on some of the most important MCAT information that you need to know. It's not going to show you the the coolest, newest physics equations or uh, verbal reasoning passages, but it'll be important for... It's much cooler than that. It's, it's, much, it's information that you normally wouldn't think about, and that's the type of information that, that we want you to know to get uh, the the best experience and, and the best application in the hands of a uh, medical school admissions committee member. So freemcatgift.com for that. If you're hanging out on Twitter, come say hi to us. I'm at Medical School HQ. Allison's on Twitter, but I, I, I don't even think she's in the double digits for tweets yet. <laughs> I'm I'm new. She's, Still new to it. <laughs> she's at Allison underscore M S H Q. And that's Allison with two L's. I, I do love I do love it. I'm just I'm not a good tweeter yet. <laughs> yes. Not a good tweeter. We'll work on that. And what else? I think that's it. So I hope you got a ton of great information out of today's podcast. And if you did, go to medicalschoolhq.net slash iTunes and leave us a nice, honest rating and review on that page. It'll only take a minute of your time and it greatly helps us when it comes to exposure in iTunes. If you're listening on Stitcher, you can do the same thing through the Stitcher app. So, as I said, I hope you got a ton of great information out of today's show. And as always, I hope you join us next time here at the Medical School Headquarters.